Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today was the conclusion of the Federal Reserve meeting in which the Federal Reserve left interest rates unchanged. And that is exactly what the market was expecting. Nobody expected the Fed to hike and nobody expected the Fed to cut. But apparently, a lot of people expected the Fed to be more dovish with respect to its outlook for a potential future rate cut. Remember, the uh, Fed fund futures are showing that the next move is likely to be a cut and that maybe uh, the Fed will cut by 50 basis points by the end of the year. So the markets are probably looking for some reassurance by the Fed that the market's expectations of lower interest rates uh, are valid. And that's not what they got today. Uh, from uh, Chairman Powell. In fact, he was actually asked point blank by uh, CNBC's Steve Leisman. It was one of the first questions asked, maybe it was the very first question asked, was whether or not the Federal Reserve was going to do something about persistently low inflation. Because after all, the official inflation rate is slightly below their target. I mean, you're talking if the target is 2% and we're at 1.7, 1.8, I mean, who cares? But somehow this is a an emergency. This is a disaster. I mean, we're not hitting our 2% target, even though we're pretty damn close. But is the Fed going to do something about it? And, you know, instead of saying, oh, yes, we're going to do something about it, we're going to cut rates to make sure that we have 2% inflation. Uh, What Powell said was, well, yes, we acknowledge that inflation is lower than we would like. It's lower than our goal, but we're not worried because we expect it to be transitory. In other words, we're not worried about inflation being too low because we believe the rate is going to rise. And so there's nothing to worry about. We could just, uh, you know, stay pat. And in fact, what Powell said was that the Fed is going to be patient. But as of right now, you know, they can't see a reason why they should hike or they don't see a reason why they should cut or the case for hiking is no better or worse than the case for cutting. Of course, this is still 180 degrees away from where they were uh, not too long ago before the market collapsed in the fourth quarter of last year when the Fed was on autopilot, when they were going to keep on hiking, when they were going to normalize interest rates. uh, They're no longer seeking to normalize rates unless they're redefining uh, what normal is uh, to what we've got right now and trying to say uh, that that this is normal. But in any event, as soon as uh, Powell basically said this, the price of gold sold off immediately. I mean, it didn't get completely decimated today. I think it was down about seven or eight dollars. And I think before uh, Powell spoke, it was down about a buck or two. I think it initially rallied a dollar or two on the initial statement that came out uh, following the non-hike by the Fed. But then uh, when Powell started talking about how inflation is transitory, and so therefore the Fed doesn't actually have to do something to generate more inflation, uh, then the price of gold sold off. The stock market kind of held up until the very end of the day. 
And then the stock market finally rolled over. The Dow closed right on the low of the day, down 162 points. Uh, NASDAQ down 45 points. Uh, Russell 2000 uh, had the biggest percentage decline, almost a full percent down. You know, the markets earlier this week, I think maybe yesterday, made new highs. You know, the Dow, S&P made new highs. Uh, the uh, Russell 2000 did not, not all indexes made new highs and clearly not all the stocks made new highs. Uh, you know, you have a, a, a very concentrated group of stocks uh, that are causing the averages to to make new highs. But nonetheless, we did make new highs. And, you know, so technically, maybe this is no longer a bear market rally. I mean, I've been calling this a bear market rally since it started. And maybe technically, uh, if it made a new high, maybe this was a new bull market. But if it is a new bull market, it's going to be the shortest bull market in history, uh, and we're going to go right into another bear market. But I still think that even though uh, this bear market rally technically took the indexes to new highs, if all we did is barely make a new high and then we roll over and make new lows, uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that we were in a bear market the entire time and the rally was just a bear trap or a bull trap. We trapped the bulls and it was actually even a stronger bear market rally in that it was so strong, it was even able to briefly lift the market up to new highs uh, before it rolled over and dumped. And I still think that is where we are going. You know, the economic data continues to be very weak. You know, the markets really did not react to the economic data that came out earlier this morning. I guess everybody was waiting for the FOMC press conference, but we had weak economic data that came out. In particular, the ISM manufacturing and the construction spending numbers. Let's look at the ISM manufacturing. This is an April number, and the uh, consensus was for 55. And we got 52.8. That is a big decline in that number. In fact, that is a two-year low for the ISM manufacturing number. Looking at construction spending for March, the consensus was for an increase of 0.2. And that was following a uh, rise of 0.1 in, in February. Well, number one, they revised down February's gain from up 1% to up 0.7%, but then instead of rising 0.2%, we actually fell by 0.9%, so a huge miss on construction spending. And a big part of the problem was had to do with housing and construction in the housing market, and that is going to continue. I mean, this is an ongoing problem that is going to get much, much worse. Now, we did get uh, what people considered stronger economic data on Monday when we got the personal income and, and spending numbers. And we actually got the, the numbers for February and March. They both came out on the same day. Uh, but the big number or the market moving number was the March number because there we saw a 0.9% surge in consumer spending, which is one of the biggest jumps uh, in, in quite some time, although it followed some very weak numbers. In fact, the number for February was just 0.1. So that was a very low number. But if you look at the personal income numbers, there it was a disappointment. They were looking for an increase of 0.4 in incomes following a meager 0.2% rise in the prior month. And instead, we only went up by 0.1%. In other words, uh, the, the weak number we had in February went down. March was half of what we got in February. So incomes went down or barely went up and spending went up. So what does that mean? I mean, maybe consumers took on more debt. We know the savings rate plunged, but it also may mean that prices went up. And so consumers had to pay more money to buy stuff. But again, if we really had a strong economy, um, incomes would be rising. If we really had a strong economy, people wouldn't be taking on more debt to buy things. They wouldn't have to. In fact, if we had a strong economy, people would be paying off their debt. They would be using the windfall from a strong economy to pay off the debts that they accumulated when the economy was weak and they didn't have as, as good an income. They didn't have as good a job. You know, the same inconsistencies you can see with Donald Trump, because Donald Trump just yesterday tweeted out that the Federal Reserve should drop interest rates by 100 basis points. He's up the ante. His last tweets, he was calling for the Fed to reduce interest rates by a half a percent. Now he wants a full percent. 
and he wants an immediate return to quantitative easing. And he said if the Fed only did this, well, then the economy would really be good. Now, look, Donald Trump wants to pretend that we have the greatest economy ever in the history of the country. Well, you can't say we have the greatest economy in the history of the country and then say we need to slash interest rates by 1%. Uh, we're at 25 We need to go to 1.5%. I mean, we already have very low interest rates. And what Trump is saying is that the economy needs support. It needs to be rescued by the Fed. It needs to be propped up with cheap money. Well, if it's so strong, why does it need all that support? Why does it need all that health, right? It's like your doctor telling you you're super healthy but we have to keep you on this machine uh, to keep you on life support. I mean, it's one or the other. Either we're healthy or we're sick. If we're healthy, interest rates should go up. If we really have a strong economy, rates are too low. Why is the Fed still artificially suppressing rates if the economy is so strong? The fact of the matter is it's not strong. That's why the Fed's got rates as low as they are. And But the problem is the economy is so weak, the bubble was so big, that keeping rates where they are now is not enough to sustain it, and the air is going to come out. But, you know, when everybody was listening to Powell today, and he wasn't immediately reinforcing the fact that the Fed was going to cut rates, right now the markets are getting nervous that maybe we're not going to get these rate cuts. We're going to get rate cuts. I mean, it's just a matter of time. There is no way the Fed is going to raise interest rates. It is going to cut interest rates. Now, long-term interest rates may ultimately move up. In fact, they will move up. The question is, how quickly will they move up? How long will it take uh, for bond investors to figure out how bearish rate cuts are for the dollar and for U.S. bond market? But there is just no way that the Fed is not going to cut rates. And it doesn't even matter. You know, uh, Powell is correct. The low inflation numbers are, in fact, transitory. The official inflation numbers are not going to remain below 2%. They are going to go above 2% by a lot. But none of that matters because initially the Fed is not going to do anything about rising inflation. It is already now uh, you know, basically preparing the markets for inflation above 2% because now every time Powell talks, he talks about symmetrical inflation. He's only saying that because he knows he's going to allow inflation to be over 2% so he can claim it's still symmetrical. That, you know, well, if you average the years from below 2%, now it could be above 2%. But, you know, all this shows you how how nonsensical the idea that the reason we need 2% inflation is to provide a cushion against deflation, right? Because, I mean, I saw Jim Grant, again, he was on CNBC today, and Jim Grant probably one of the best guys that actually comes on CNBC. And he was just exposing that myth. He was talking about how this is nonsense, how the idea that we need 2% inflation when once upon a time, the goal of the Fed was price stability, right? And in fact, if you listen to what the Fed says today, listen to Powell, he still says our goal is price stability, which we define as 2% inflation. Well, I mean, what the hell is that? That's like George Orwell. I mean, how do you define stability by going up 2% every year? I mean, if prices are rising 2% a year, you don't have any stability at all. You have rising prices. Stable prices means they stay the same. They don't change over time. So to, for the Fed says we want stable prices, but we're defining stable prices as prices that go up every year, then they don't want stable prices. They want prices that go up. But what Grant was pointing out was how nonsense this is that, you know, if prices go up by 2% every year, you destroy a lot of value over time. Because what the Fed is really saying is they want the dollar to lose 2% of its value every year. See, the, the Fed's goal used to be to provide stability. So they wanted the purchasing power of the dollar to be stable. But now they don't want the purchasing power to be stable. They want the dollar to lose purchasing power every year. They want the dollar to lose 2% of its value every year. But why? Why is that a good thing? You know, and when Jim Grant said this on CNBC, everybody jumped all over him and they said, oh, this is terrible. This is nonsense. Of course we need 2% inflation. I mean, and one guy was saying, well, one reason we need it is because we know the CPI actually understates inflation. And so when we target 2%, you know, it's really under 2%, which of course he's got it ass backwards. I mean, the CPI understates inflation. So if you're saying we want to have 2% inflation as measured by the CPI, at least the CPI we got now, well, then you're actually getting inflation much higher 
than 2%. But even setting that aside, he brought up the same argument that we need to have 2% inflation as the insurance policy against deflation. Well, if that's actually the case, why does the Fed think we need symmetry now? Why do we have to make up for all the years when inflation was 1.5% or 1.6% or 1.8% by having 2.2 or 2.4? Because by definition, if we had a year where inflation was 1.6, we didn't have deflation that year. So, you know, we lucked out, right? Prices didn't go down, right? The cost of living didn't come down. We did have an increase in the cost of living. Why do we have to make up for that now by going backwards and just adding to it? If the whole goal is just to avoid uh, prices going down, well, we accomplished that goal. So why can't we stick with 2%, right? Because it's not a bad thing that prices went up by 1.5% and not 2%. If the only bad thing is falling prices, well, prices didn't fall. They went up. And isn't it good if they only go up by a little bit as opposed to a little bit more or by a lot? But then the other nonsense that this guy said and, and Jim Grant you know did a good job of like calling him out on it uh, and this is a you know a common opinion the guy was saying look we need uh, to have higher inflation to give the Fed some room when they get to the lower bound of interest rates meaning when you get to zero percent interest rates you know if you have really low inflation well then you know you don't have any place to go and they don't want to have to go negative like in Europe right they went negative and so to give us more room when we get down to the zero bound we need to have some higher rate of inflation in order to get negative interest rates without having to go negative in nominal terms right because if you have let's say 3% inflation and 1% interest rates, right? You got negative two, right? And so what he's saying is if inflation is really low, let's say inflation is 1%, well, there's, how do you, you know, you can't get stimulative enough. You can't get the real rate low enough unless you go negative. And, and Jim Grant pointed out that the only reason that we're even at the zero bound was because those idiots at the Fed took us there. I mean, why are we down here anyway? It's because of the mistakes that Alan Greenspan made and the mistakes that Ben Bernanke made. And Jim Grant basically said the Fed has been making mistakes for 20 years. Jim Grant said that the Fed inflated the dot-com bubble by keeping rates too low. And then when that popped, they lowered rates to 1%. And then they inflated the housing bubble. And when that popped, they lowered rates to zero. And he said each and every one of those moves was a mistake. And now we're down here at the lower bound. And so now the Fed says, oh, because we're at the lower bound, we have to make sure we have a higher inflation. Two wrongs don't make a right. But this other guy that was on CNBC, or a couple of guys, were talking about, oh, no, the Fed hasn't made any mistakes. The Fed has done everything brilliantly. The Fed has been perfect. They've done. They've had great policy. The, the, the Fed has been the fire department that actually lights all the fires, right? They start all the fires, and then they claim credit for putting them out, right? Oh, oh, great. But the problem is they don't put them out. As I've said, they're throwing gasoline on the fire, so it only looks like they've gone out, but they come back bigger than ever. But they want to claim credit for putting out these fires uh, without accepting the responsibility for starting the fires in the first place. But, you know, this whole concept that we need rising prices, right? That somehow, if we don't have rising prices, we're not going to get economic growth. I mean, I have talked about that, you know, ad nauseum uh, over the years on my radio show, on my podcast. But, you know, I just happened to pull up a chart of the CPI. Uh, this is, These are government numbers. And 1967 is the year that equals 100, where the CPI index is 100. Now, today, the CPI index, or at the end of 2018, it was 752.9. So prices are seven times higher today uh, than they were in 1967, right? And so that is a huge loss of purchasing power of the dollar. And that is a, a particular point, because when the Federal Reserve had a goal of price stability, they, they failed miserably, right? Prices did not stay stable despite the fact that that was the Fed's goal, right? The Fed did not want the dollar to lose value. They didn't have a 2% uh, target. They, they wanted real stable prices, meaning prices that didn't change, that stayed the same. And that was their goal. And but they failed miserably at that. We had lots of inflation. Prices went way up, despite the fact that the Fed wanted to keep them stable. The dollar lost a lot of value, despite the fact that the Fed's goal was to preserve its value. So think about this. If we had all this inflation, when the Fed's goal was zero, imagine how much more we're going to have now when the Fed's goal is 2%, right? The Fed no longer wants price stability. The Fed actually wants prices to go up. Now, in this case, they're going to succeed 
right? They failed at keeping prices stable. They will succeed in making them go up, but they will fail in containing the increase to just 2% a year. The increase is going to be much better than 2%. But, you know, when the Fed was first started in 1913, right, and this concept of price stability, right, that was part of the original goals of the Fed. They wanted price stability. But why? Because I think that was a mistake. Because falling prices are better than stable prices. I mean, ask any consumer if they'd rather pay lower prices than they paid last year or the same. Everybody would rather pay lower prices, right? I mean, that's reality. And that means that your standard of living is going up because your cost of living is going down. But getting me back to the CPI index that I wanted to mention, where 1967 is 100. In 1800, that index was at 51, 1800. In the year 1900, we're talking 100 years later, the index was at 25, 25. So consumer prices in 1900 were half of what they were in 1800. 100 years of deflation. Now, if you talk to an economist today, oh, what would happen if prices fell for 100 years? Oh, my God, it would be a 100-year depression. It would be the worst I mean, thing imaginable, except it wasn't. Um, you know, do people think the U.S. economy didn't grow between 1800 and 1900? I mean, come on. I mean, first of all, that included the Gilded Age, which is, you know, after the Civil War to about 1900. That is the most prosperous period of, in economic history, uh, the greatest amount of growth. But what happened to the U.S. economy between 1800 and 1900? First of all, in 1800, everybody was riding on horses. People had automobiles in 1900. No one had electricity in 1800. They had it in 1900, right? I mean, think about the transformation. Think about all the people that were living in cities that used to be living on farms, right? The whole industrial revolution. Think about all the manufactured products in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s that didn't exist, you know, in 1800. Think about all the immigrants that came to this country in the 1880s and the 1890s, the millions and millions of people that the population exploded in the United States. I mean, think about all this economic growth that we had in the 19th century in the United States and prices went down. I mean, first of all, modern economists think that's impossible. They think, well, you have to have rising prices to have economic growth. Well, in the 19th century, we had more economic growth than the 20th century, and we had falling prices, right? So clearly, you don't need rising prices to have economic growth. In fact, we had more economic growth when prices were falling than we did when prices were rising. And of course, falling prices are a good thing because that means your standard of living goes up. That means you can buy more stuff with less money. So we had 100 years of falling prices before we had a Federal Reserve, right? We were on a gold standard. We had real money, and, and prices were not just stable. Prices went down, right? And, you know, I know today, like, if anybody talks to uh, their, uh, their grandfather and they'll say, oh, I remember when prices were this or that, right? Prices were so much lower. Well, if you were a kid in 1900 and you were talking to your grandfather, it was the opposite conversation. Well, I remember when I was a kid, this was really expensive. And now look how cheap it is, right? I mean, we have those conversations today when it comes to technology, right? When it comes to a cell phone or a laptop computer or television, we can tell our kids that, you know, we actually used to pay more money for these things, but not so for most products, right? But Back then, it was true for all products, right? We had a falling cost of living because we had real money and we didn't have a Federal Reserve. Now we have a Federal Reserve, and first they said we needed stable prices, and they gave us lots of inflation. They said that they were going to defend the value of the dollar, and the dollar collapsed, right? Well, now the same Fed, although different people, but the same institution is now abandoning the pretense of wanting stable prices. Now they say we need inflation. Right? We need it like a hole in the head. Who needs inflation? The government needs inflation because the government is the world's biggest debtor. And inflation helps debtors eradicate their debt. Right? So the government needs inflation so it can screw its creditors uh, by repaying them in debased money. Why else do we need inflation? To sustain asset prices. Right? How do we keep the stock market going up? How do we keep real estate market going up? These are prices, stock prices, real estate prices. They want to sustain that inflation.
they don't want prices to come down for financial assets, so they have to keep creating more and more inflation to sustain the bubbles. But why do we have the bubbles? Because the Federal Reserve inflated the bubbles. So now because they inflated the bubbles, everybody else has to suffer a diminished standard of living, a falling standard of living, in order to prevent uh, the music from stopping. I mean, because the Fed tries to pretend that this is all uh, in, in our best interest. They keep saying that they're trying to help the American economy. They're trying to help the American consumer. In fact, what Powell said is he is trying to keep this expansion going for the benefit of the American economy. The expansion ending is what would benefit the American economy because this is not a genuine expansion. This is a bubble. And keeping the bubble from popping, enabling the bubble to get bigger and bigger and bigger is not good for the American economy. It's not good for anybody except the people who are speculating and profiting from the bubble. And of course, even those people are going to suffer because the bubble is going to pop and all their paper profits are going to vanish. And so they're not actually going to have anything to show uh, for the uh, the bubble except the memories of profits they used to have and all, all the bad decisions uh, that, that they made basically while they were operating under false assumptions that were created uh, by the bubble itself and by the uh, the mispriced assets. In fact, Jim Grant, again, uh, when they asked him, well, what would you do with interest rates if you were Fed chairman? What Jim Grant said is, well, I would let the market determine interest rates just the way the market determines the price of soybeans, which is exactly what I have been saying. You don't want the Federal Reserve and a bunch of people trying to guess what the right rate of interest is. You know, no more than you want them to guess what the appropriate price of soybeans is. You don't need that. That's what we have a market for, right? We have a free market that discovers the price based on all the individual buyers and sellers. You still have that when it comes to interest rates because interest rates are the price of borrowing money. And uh, it's going to be discovered as savers and borrowers interact with one another, the savers constitute the supply. People who are saving money, under-consuming, they create supply. Then you have demand. Businesses who are looking to invest in capital goods or maybe a homeowner who wants to buy a house or somebody who wants to fund a college education. You have all sorts of reasons that people are borrowing money and then people are saving money and now you have supply and demand. And then let the market clear. What is the rate of interest that clears the supply of savings with a demand for those savings and then let the market find the interest rate? That could happen without the Fed's interference. The problem is that the Fed got out of the way and let the market discover the rate of interest. Does anybody think it'd be where it is? No, it would be substantially higher than where it is. So we have artificially low interest rates. We don't have interest rates that are being determined by a free market. We have interest rates that are being, you know, pulled out of a hat by a bunch of a bunch of bureaucrats. And of course, they're not just pulling them randomly. They want interest rates low to sustain all these bubbles. But what they're doing is delaying the day of reckoning. They're sustaining the mistakes that are being made during the bubble. Why was the, uh, the crisis in 08 so bad? Because there were a lot of mistakes made when the Fed had interest rates at 1%. There were a lot of malinvestments. There was a lot of misallocation of resources because interest rates were artificially low. Well, they're, they're, they're still artificially low. In fact, they were much lower for much longer this time. So the number of mistakes that were made were greater. The, 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 the size of those mistakes were greater. So we have a more screwed up economy right now with more misallocations, more malinvestments. And all the Federal Reserve is doing is trying to sustain that, trying to keep that going, right? Trying to allow the patient to get sicker and sicker and sicker because the medicine doesn't taste good. Well, you know, if you avoid taking the medicine long enough, you're going to die. And I'd rather swallow a bitter tasting medicine than just die from some disease because I don't want to deal with the bad taste. But this is the political reality of what's going on. And Donald Trump knows this. That's why he's out there saying that we need to cut interest rates and we need to do more quantitative easing. He's worried uh, that we get some of that taste before the 2020 election. And then, you know, the electorate barfs out and ends up uh, going for a socialist. But in any event, so, you know, the markets, again, are still fixated on the Fed, really ignoring uh, some of the weak economic data that's coming out. I guess they're still looking at the jobs numbers that everybody still believes are so strong. You know, I didn't mention it on Friday's podcast, uh, slipped my mind, but on Thursday of last week, we did get a huge jump 
in uh, weekly jobless claims. So, you know, they were trying to dismiss that. Maybe it had something to do with the holidays. I don't know. To me, if there were a lot of people on holiday, that would mean that they didn't file unemployment benefits. But we'll see what happens if this was a change of trend, because it was a very significant jump up in jobless claims. Of course, we do get the non-farm payroll report on Friday. And, you know, the markets are, are, are more sensitive to the jobs numbers because they're a more politically important number, right? Everybody wants to talk about jobs. Trump always wants to you know, claim credit for creating jobs. So that, that is a politically sensitive number. And, of course, one day these jobs numbers are going to implode because if you're, you know, just looking at the jobs numbers and you're ignoring a lot more forward-looking indicators, right, you're driving in the rearview mirror. And uh, that's not a, a, a good way to drive because you may end up getting into a collision because you're not paying attention to where you're going. You're just looking at where you've been. And I think that is the case when it comes to the, the jobs. But I want to just uh, talk a little bit more about Bitcoin, Bitcoin versus gold, because I noticed that Barry Silbert, who is the uh, founder and chief executive officer, Digital Currency Group, he is going to be my opponent in my gold versus Bitcoin debate that is coming up at the SALT conference in Las Vegas on May 9th. And he just launched a campaign today. And I read a number of articles about this campaign. And the campaign is drop gold. And so the whole idea is that gold investors should drop their gold and buy Bitcoin. Or not necessarily buy Bitcoin, but invest in his trust that owns Bitcoin and other, you know, cryptocurrencies. And and so he's got this whole commercial that he he put together, which apparently is actually going to be airing on television, which is targeting gold buyers, trying to tell them why gold is the past and Bitcoin is the future. And they're fools if they're buying uh, gold and they should, you know, they should be buying Bitcoin instead. Like, you know, hey, what are you doing riding around in a horse and buggy? Why don't you get yourself a car, right? Uh, Bitcoin's the future. Gold is the past. I mean, this whole thing is a bunch of nonsense. But, you know, it shows me that maybe there's a little bit of desperation going on in the community because maybe they've run out of suckers uh, to buy into this. Maybe maybe there's not that many high school kids left with any bar mitzvah money who are buying into the Bitcoin market and they need to now to try to shake out the gold buyer. I don't think they're going to have much success. And by the way, there's not a lot of people buying gold now. I can tell you that because, you know, I can see the demand is way down for gold. Uh, and so just try to, you know, go after the gold market and say, hey, you guys stop buying gold uh, and, and buy Bitcoin. I mean, you're targeting a very small market with your ad, but that maybe means that the broader population is already tiring of Bitcoin. And so now they're trying to uh, trying to market uh, market gold. But, you know, if you go to the website, you can see all of this misleading stuff that is on there about uh, gold and about Bitcoin. I mean, first, I mean, he exaggerates uh, the, the strengths of Bitcoin and he minimizes uh, the, the legitimate strength of gold. In fact, he's got one chart there. You know, he's got uh, um, digital gold for the digital age and he's contrasting gold to Bitcoin, right? And so, you know, he puts a check by it if you have the, the, the quality and a no if you don't. So first he starts with low storage cost, transferability and shipping and bitcoin is a check and gold is a no now i don't understand what does he mean by a no i mean low storage cost i mean there's no storage cost with gold if you store it yourself i mean a lot of people that buy gold store it in their house doesn't cost them anything uh so the storage cost is zero on gold in fact it costs something if you're storing your bitcoins in his trust because they have a management fee in fact it's funny because he talks about how great Bitcoin is, you know, when he talks about all the attributes that it supposedly has that gold doesn't have. But then he trashes Bitcoin when he describes why you shouldn't buy it, why you should buy his Grayscale Bitcoin Trust instead. In fact, I'm going to read. This is right from his website. Grayscale Bitcoin Trust offers the benefits of investing in Bitcoin without having to buy and store Bitcoin itself and manage additional individual accounts, wallets, and private keys. Grayscale Scales Bitcoin Trust was developed to offer investors ease of mind and an investment product that is familiar to both financial advisors and investors. Well, wait a minute. Why do they need that? If, if, if Bitcoin is a be-all and end-all, well, you know, why, why do they need this trust? Here, listen to what he writes more. Often individuals and institutions seeking to directly purchase or sell Bitcoin must themselves transact via unfamiliar exchanges or intermediaries that in some cases may be unregulated and insecure. This often requires investors to transmit funds to jurisdictions where they might not be comfortable. In addition, storing Bitcoin on one's own 
can be additional can cause additional headaches. Wait, storing Bitcoin on your own can cause headaches as the private keys, the equivalent of the passwords, which ensure access to an investor's Bitcoin can be susceptible to loss or theft. This potentially exposes one's Bitcoin position to partial or total loss, often with limited or no recourse to regain access to Bitcoin. Wait a minute. He was just telling everybody why Bitcoin is so great. And now he's basically saying it's such a headache. It's so terrible. You shouldn't actually even buy it. You should just invest in the trust. See, he goes on and he writes, in contrast, by investing in Grayscone Bitcoin Trust, investors avoid the challenges of purchasing, storing, and transferring Bitcoin on their own. All right, well, wait a minute. I thought there were no challenges. I thought it was so easy. I thought it was so much better than gold. Why do they have to avoid all these problems by buying the trust? And of course, if Bitcoin has all the problems that he claims it has, why is anyone going to buy it at all? Why is it going to collapse? I mean, when you go back to this chart, Bitcoin versus gold, um, he's like, okay, transferability. Check to Bitcoin and, and no to gold. Wait a minute. He was just describing how difficult it is to transfer your Bitcoin. It's so difficult that you shouldn't even buy it. You should buy his trust. But he says you can't transfer your gold. Of course you can. I can hand my gold to anyone I want. I mean, gold is so easy to transport. I can just take my gold and give it to somebody. I can take a gold coin that I have and hand it to somebody, and now they've got it. Now, I mean, that's transferability. I mean, I don't know what he's talking about. I mean, yes, you can't transfer it electronically. Now, you could transfer uh, ownership of gold electronically if you have it in a vault, right? If you have a gold money account and you want to transfer ownership of your gold to somebody else, you could do that instantaneously, uh, you know, over the Internet, just as easily as you can transfer ownership of your, your Bitcoin. In fact, maybe easier because he just went on to describe how cumbersome and complicated it is to actually transact in Bitcoin. Then he has the next category, divisibility, right? Well, he has a check for Bitcoin and a no for gold. I mean, gold isn't divisible. Gold can be melted down uh, and, and made into tiny little specks. I mean, you can, you, you can melt gold down, make, you know, 10,000 coins, quarter ounce coins, half ounce coins. You could have, uh, you know, one, uh, you know, gram little, little, little cubes. I mean, you, and then whatever you do with your gold, you can melt it all back down and start all over again. I mean, gold is perfectly divisible. That was one of the characteristics that helped it succeed as the most marketable commodity, which is what money is, right? Uh, but so, and, and then he says, you know, divisibility permits microtransactions. Like you, with Bitcoin, check. All right, nobody is doing microtransactions with Bitcoin. Nobody. But you know what? You could do microtransactions with gold, too, if you're you know, using it in conjunction with a debit card or something like that, uh, which is what you need with Bitcoin. In fact, almost all the transactions that are done with Bitcoin are done through BitPay, which is not using Bitcoin at all. You're simply selling your Bitcoins and acquiring dollars, and then you're transacting with your dollars. Look, if you've got a, a margin account, a brokerage account, you have a margin account, your broker will send you a debit card. And then you can you could use your debit card to buy whatever you want. You're just basically using the margin bill of your stocks to buy to buy products. So you can make microtransactions using your stock portfolio. There's nothing unique about Bitcoin when it comes to that. Then he's got the next category, not easily susceptible to counterfeiting. He says gold is easy to counterfeit. What do you mean it's easy to counterfeit? Gold is almost impossible to counterfeit. Why do you think it's been money for so long? You think people were using gold for money all these years because it was so easy to counterfeit it? It's not easy to counterfeit it. That's the point. You know, I mean, gold has unique properties that other metals just don't have. I mean, yeah, I mean, is it possible somebody can have some bar gold and fool some idiot into thinking it's gold and it's fool's gold? Yes, but if, you, if you're smarter, I mean, you buy a, buy, get a maple leaf or a cougarant or some kind of a, you know, recognizable coin and just take a look at it, and you can pretty much tell whether it's genuine or not. But there are all sorts of tests that you could perform on gold to determine whether or not it's legitimate. So th th for him to claim that it's easy to counterfeit gold shows how little the guy actually knows about gold. Then he has this stuff, decentralized, which I guess he checks for gold is also decentralized. Borderless, he gives gold a check there. Weightless, okay, yes, gold has a weight. Bitcoin doesn't. All right, but what's, I mean, so, yeah, Bitcoin has no weight because it has no value, right? <laughs> that, that's the reason it has no weight. Uh, then he has fast value transfer. Bitcoin, yes, gold, no. Look, I can transfer the value of my gold very quickly. If I hand it to somebody else, I've transferred the value. Boom, instantaneously. That's very quick. You know, uh, now 
Could you, in theory, transfer Bitcoin quicker if you're over a long distance? Sure. But there's not real value there. There's just temporary value. But there are plenty of other cryptocurrencies that you can transfer faster than Bitcoin. So what, you know, what does that mean? Then he goes on the you know, limited supply, right? And he says, well, Bitcoin is limited in supply. Well, yes and no, right? I mean, is the supply of Bitcoin limited? Technically, but there's an unlimited supply of forks. You get Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Classic, Bitcoin Gold. I mean, you, you know, they can keep rolling out these Bitcoins, right? They keep forking it off. And then you have all of these other cryptocurrencies that are really indistinguishable from Bitcoin in anything other than the name. I mean, yes, you could say that gold is a metal and there are other metals. There's silver, there's copper, right? There's nickel. There's a lot of different metals, but none of them have the same properties as gold. They just are a different element on the periodic table, but they're not identical to gold. And But you could come up with any number of Bitcoins that would be virtually identical to Bitcoin in everything other than the name, right, as far as what they can do. And in fact, you can come up with bit cryptocurrencies, and people already have come up with cryptocurrencies, that are better than Bitcoin at whatever Bitcoin is saying that it's good at. They're already better than it right now. I mean, you know, there is nothing better than gold at being gold. Because if you want gold, you need to use gold. I mean, if you're willing to accept something else, well, then there are other metals, but they're not necessarily going to have the properties that gold has. That's not the case with Bitcoin. The other cryptocurrencies have the same properties. It's just that they have a different name, right? That's all. Then he says, no government freezes or confiscations, limited control. Oh, to think that Bitcoin, right, somehow... Uh, can't be confiscated. He writes that gold doesn't have that quality, right? No government freezes or confiscations. Believe me, it's very hard for the government to take your gold, right? Even when the U.S. government seized gold, they didn't get very much because nobody turned it in, right? It's going to be much easier for governments to follow your, you know, your crypto fingerprints, right? People who are now hearing from the IRS because they traded in uh, Bitcoin and they didn't report their transactions. I mean, all this stuff is online. It's far more easy for the government to go and look into your history of cryptocurrency use than in gold use. I mean, if you are just handing gold back and forth, uh, there, there is no record of that. So there, I think there is more protection from government. I think you have more privacy when you are owning and transacting in gold than you do when you are owning and transacting in, in, in Bitcoin. So to say that, oh, you know, you, you're totally safe from government when you own Bitcoin, uh, yet, you know, you're, you're at the mercy of government when you own gold is a, is, a, is a bunch of nonsense. You know, and then he has this idea, you know, oh, I mentioned, I, I wanted to mention, mention thing about portability, which had to do kind of with the transparency transferability, which is really uh, a name for portability. I mean, an example of a, an asset that's really not very portable is real estate, right? You own a piece of real estate, you know, it's it's stuck where it is. I mean, you can't take your real estate with you when you leave. If you leave the country, your real estate is staying here unless you can sell it before you leave. Uh, but that may take some time. But gold is very portable. You take your gold, you put it in your pocket, you put it in a suitcase and you leave, right? It is extremely portable. But to try to imply that it's not portable uh, is just completely disingenuous. And that's what this guy's doing. But the last thing he's got on here is uh, it's good for buying a latte. Like Bitcoin is good for buying a latte and gold is not. And again, that's nonsense. Nobody is selling lattes for Bitcoin. You want a latte, go out and try to, fight, try to buy one with Bitcoin. You're not going to do it. And if there's anybody that's accepting it, you got to go through BitPay. So they're not really accepting uh, Bitcoin, they are accepting dollars. You could just as easily take a debit card on your brokerage account and you can buy your latte with your shares of IBM, right? Anybody can do that. Anybody can lever an asset in a, in a margin account and, you know, you could use a debit card, you know, on gold, you know, gold money account and you could use that. But in theory, if it wasn't for government and the main reason that gold money has not been able to roll out a total platform that would enable transactions in gold is because of government regulation. I mean, that's the only thing that's stopping it. I mean, if it wasn't for government regulation, right, gold money could easily today have a system right now that allowed every merchant in the country to sell lattes and accept payment in fractions of a gram of gold. And it would be instantaneous payment. It is very easy 
to use gold for micropayments. Much easier than it would be for using cryptocurrencies. The only reason it's not being done is because the government won't let it be done. Now, for obvious reasons, right? Why would the government want to compete with honest money? Why would the government want to compete? When you have a Federal Reserve and other central banks that are saying, we will destroy the value of our currencies every year. We are going to make sure that our currencies lose value. And then you have an alternative, gold, which is going to have stable value. If you have a choice between holding something that stores its value or holding something that loses its value, what are you going to choose? It's obvious. So the government has to make it harder and harder for people to make that choice by cracking down on any institution that tries to offer that choice to consumers. But you know, if they're going to prevent the gold community from offering that type of choice, well, they're certainly not going to allow the crypto community to do it. But of course, ultimately, the whole crypto thing is going to fall apart on its own because one of the most nonsensical points that this guy makes, and I was reading on his website, is he says that one of the best things about Bitcoin versus gold is that Bitcoin has actual utility and gold does not. And that is one of the biggest myths out there by all these crypto fools is that gold's worthless that gold doesn't actually have any value, yet Bitcoin does. I mean, come on. I mean, the only reason gold is money is because it was so valuable. That's what made it money. It was a luxury good. Why did people want it? People wanted it because of all of its unique properties. There's so many things that you can do with your gold. And the idea that it is a store of value means that I can take my gold, right, and it has all sorts of uses, but I can take the gold and I can melt it down and make it into a coin. And 100 years from now, 200 years from now, that coin can be melted down and now you've got the original gold and you can do whatever you want with it, right? You can, you can apply it in any industrial use. You can use it in electronics. You can use it in aerospace. You can use it in jewelry. It doesn't matter that it was in a coin for 100 years or 200 years. All of the value that is in that gold remains in that gold. There's nothing that you can do to it. You can't destroy it, right? It's there. It, it will exist. That is what a store of value is. When someone says, well, crypto, Bitcoin is the new store of value. What value does Bitcoin have that you are storing? What can you do with your Bitcoin? How do you unlock that value at some point in the future? See, I can do a lot of things with my gold now. It can be used in a lot of things. I don't have to use it for something. I can store it to use it later, right? It will store that value. But what can I do with my Bitcoin now? Nothing. What can I do with it in the future? Nothing. So if I can't do anything with it now, and I can't do anything with it in the future, what value am I storing? What am I preserving? This whole thing is a con. This is just a, a, a pyramid, a bubble, a pump and dump scheme. And that's what this guy is doing now with his Bitcoin trust and his crypto trusts. He is just trying to sucker more and more people into this Ponzi scheme, into this mania, and getting them to think that this is the new goal, that these are the modern-day alchemists that have reinvented gold, right? That, you know, real gold is, 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 is antiquated and old-fashioned and, and, and obsolete, and people should just start selling off their gold and incorporating uh, Bitcoin into their portfolios. And then he does this analysis on there where he shows, like, how much better your portfolio would have performed over the years if you simply had Bitcoin as part of it, like 1% Bitcoin, 2% Bitcoin, 5% Bitcoin, right? Well, of course, of course, Bitcoin went from pennies, a coin, to $20,000. Even forget that, it's still around $5,000 now. So yes, during the life of Bitcoin, which has been very short, having Bitcoin as part of any portfolio enhanced the value. Duh, that's not rocket science. But does that mean that that is going to be the case for the next five years, the next 10 years, the next 20 years? Absolutely not. To suggest that because you had this huge you know, bubble in an asset, that obviously having that asset in a portfolio would have enhanced the yield. And then he compares it to you know, a portfolio that also had an allocation to gold. And like, look, look at how much better the portfolio did when it had an allocation to Bitcoin versus gold. Of course, it's all skewed because you're looking back at a time period where Bitcoin did great and gold you know, didn't go anywhere. But 
The next 10 years can be the exact opposite. Bitcoin can go down 50%, 90%, 99%, and all those numbers are going to look horrific. I mean, obviously, too, if you just start the clock in January of 2018 and adding Bitcoin to your portfolio was a disaster, right? Now, the question is, is that trend going to continue or is the longer trend going to continue? And since the longer trend really just represents a bubble and includes the manic blow off top of that bubble, it's a lot more likely uh, that the, the newer trend, the downtrend, is the one that is going to persist and that this party is over. And the fact that they're now trying to shake out uh, some of the gold holders with this full on campaign, I mean, you don't see. Uh, gold companies trying to, you know, run television commercials, trying to convince people to sell their Bitcoin to buy gold. I mean, we wouldn't waste our money doing that. But these guys think that they have to run commercials and put up this bullshit website, you know, drop gold and all kinds of Twitter hashtags and trying to convince people to sell real gold to pile into their fool's gold. The reality is they're trying to get rid of their own Bitcoins. They're running out of suckers and they're hoping to draw some more people in uh, at the you know the, the, the later stage of this game. And again, if you look at his website, he's still on there saying, it's early. You're getting in on the ground floor. The ground floor, this is like, this is the top of the Empire State Building. I mean, nobody buying this stuff now is getting it at the bottom. Nobody is discovering something new. But they're trying to create that mentality, the idea that, hey, you know about all these young people that got rich putting a few hundred dollars into Bitcoin? Well, you know, you could do it too. Except now you have to put a few thousand in because the price has gone up. But we're all going to be rich, right, if we just buy onto this, you know, cryptocurrency. And, and, and it's all hype. It's all about, you know, trying to stoke greed and mania. And so I don't know what's going to happen to my uh, my debate. I mean, I think this guy is almost like trying to build his campaign around the fact that he's got this debate coming up with me because he did mention in one article I read about he's got this, he's kicking off the campaign with this gold versus Bitcoin debate at a major investment conference. And he doesn't mention that the conference is salt and that his opponent is me. Uh, but I'm looking forward to this event and I'm looking forward uh, you know, to a uh, a more neutral audience that we're going to have at SALT. Because I still look, you know, the debate that I did with Eric Voorhees now, you can look at that on Reason. It's got over 500,000 views now. But, you know, every time I, I, I read a comment about that or someone tweets about it, it's always how like, you know, Eric totally kicked my ass. And I, I, you know, and I'm a complete idiot. I'm a moron. And like, you know, and, and, and I don't think anybody could objectively, if you haven't watch that debate it's on i in fact i put a copy of it on my youtube channel so mine i don't have five, nearly five hundred thousand views on the one on my youtube channel but you can watch it on my youtube channel or just watch the one on um the official channel and may you know maybe we throw a comment in there because all the comments are so skewed uh, against me because i think it's you know it's it's the people who are in bitcoin and they're completely um you know, taken by it, they, they've drunk the Kool-Aid and that's it. You know, they're the ones that tend to to watch it just, you know, to to validate. And they and I think they even want to put comments on there to make sure that if anybody stumbles on the video that they read the comments so they could just conclude that I lost and Eric won without maybe even watching the debate itself. <laughs>